Michael Lee Richardson, this is your mixtape. Let's call it Queer Curation. Michael Lee Richardson is a writer and youth worker who lives in Glasgow. He won the Scottish Book Trust New Writers Award and has written comedy and drama for CBBC and BBC Alba. His short film, My Loneliness is Killing Me, about loneliness in the queer community, was commissioned by the Scottish Film Talent Network and starts shooting in January 2018. He coordinates arts development projects, usually with a queer bent, and he set up and runs Trans Youth Glasgow. He's a passionate advocate for Scotland's young people, and I'm glad to have him on the show today. Thank you. I sound very accomplished from that bio that I wrote for myself. <laughs> oh, shush, shush, shush. No, no, we mustn't, we mustn't let people see behind the curtain. <laughs> oh, yeah. I had my team right for me. <laughs> right, right. I'm really glad to have you here. Before we get started, as you're aware, this show basically is about music and people's relationship to it as they sort of go through their life. And I've asked you to pick five songs that sort of represent five different eras, if you will. Uh, but before we get into that, um, I want to know a little bit more about you and your context, where you're coming from. So let's start like when you were little. Uh, was there a lot of music around you when you were young? No, not really. When I think of my dad particularly he's a big music fan and plays music and listens to a lot of music now but I don't have any strong memories of music in the house when I was growing up until I was like a teenager I don't think the music that I heard growing up was music from movie musicals <laughs> so yeah. that is what my childhood sounds like so it's interesting that your father was really into music but it didn't sort of translate into a musical environment did he not play it when you were around? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I just have no recollection. And then like a few years ago, my dad kind of pulled out all of his old records, like sort of vinyl records, and, I, and, and was very much introducing them to me as if I should have really strong memories of like David Bowie and like, the Rolling Stones and stuff like that. But I just don't. <laughs> you just never had time for white men with guitars? <laughs> <laughs> and I still don't. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's that. I just yeah, repressed them all. Did you play a musical instrument when you were young or anything like that? Or Well, I'm from the north of England, so uh, I played in a brass band when I was uh, between the ages of about 12 and 16. And I was always into music and would be like like I did music GCSE and spent a lot of time in the music room at school a lot of the girlfriends I had were into music and I was also really into those sort of grebo guitar playing guys um I wasn't actually very good at doing music myself but it hung around a lot of people who did music the, the culture of music i suppose uh yeah. my sample size is too small but you're the second person who grew up in england that i have talked to and both of you played a brass instrument 
So. Oh wow! Was the other person from the know? Because I feel like no, it's no. She was from an outer borough of oh, London. Wow. Uh, so I, I, I noticed. I noticed she said that as if I should expect people from the north of England to be really into brass. It's in our contract to play in a brass band for some time. Yeah, like all of my family have played in brass bands. My mum, uh, my mum played in a brass band when she was younger, and still talks about that as like her sort of halcyon days. And whenever we go somewhere like any event in the north of england will have a brass band in it somewhere Um, and whenever we go somewhere where there's brass music playing she will it makes her cry even if it's not a sad song so uh, yeah that's kind of sweet it is quite sweet but a bit weird as well Well, you know we're all of us wired differently yes So let's um let's start talking about your first song selection, which was part of your world from The Little Mermaid. Up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun, wandering free. Wish I could be part of that world. What would I be? So I was wondering, do you remember when you first heard this song? I must have seen that film in the cinema. Hmm. But my enduring memory of it is having it on VHS and watching it a lot, a lot, a lot as a kid. It was the first, I think, like, I was thinking about this and I think it was the first film that was like a new film that I was into when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And like, I'd seen obviously all the kind of Wizard of Oz and Sound of Music and the things that you're supposed to see when you're a kid. And then that, The Little Mermaid was the first one that was mine, not like mm. linked to a parent or an older cousin or something like that. So I can I have really enduring memories of watching that film on VHS a lot when I was a kid. So the film in general, you really quite mm. liked the film. It was one of your favorites because you watched it a lot. Were you generally a Disney fan? Like, was this the first of this sort of like era of Disney in the like 90s with like, you know, Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King and on all those, that sort of suite of movies? Was this the first one? Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. was. It's it's part of what the adult Disney fans refer to as the second renaissance um, of Disney films, which is this and Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin and The Lion King. But this was the first one. And, and I think when I look back at it, actually, a lot of those films and this one in particular is very queer. There's a lot of interesting stuff in it, not least that it was Alan Menken and Howard Ashman that wrote uh, the music and lyrics. But yeah, that everybody knows the kind of Ursula is divine stories and stuff like that. But there's a lot of queer stuff in that film that I'm really attracted to. Yeah, well, I mean, Ariel herself. Uh, I was recently at Town, which is the big gay bar in Washington, D.C., for Halloween, mm. and they started the night with the drag act. They did this song, and oh, then wow. um, Ursula came on and did Poor Unfortunate Souls. Mm. <laughs> so I was wondering, hmm, that's another one that you could have picked, I suppose. But part of part of your world is the one that you chose. And I'm thinking about... There's that longing, there's that sort of somewhat naive um, sense of wanting difference. Uh, am, I, am I reading in here? No, absolutely not. That's, I think that's what it is. And that's what it is now, definitely. But I think that's what it was then to me as well. I think that's what I was responding to in that song. 
So when I listened to it to prepare for this podcast, the first thing that came out of the speakers when I popped it onto Spotify was uh, the bit of dialogue. Maybe there is something the matter with me. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness. Pretty much every <laughs> queer kid has had that thought, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I think when I kind of look at it now as an adult, like she is essentially like an old gay man in that <laughs> that song. She's got a this cavern full of trinkets that she's collected. There's something, I think what I really respond to in that sort of sequence of things is she is a fan of stuff she's like outside looking into this world and and, and everything in it is queered because she doesn't have a context for all of the stuff that she's collected but i, th- I think i have really really strong memories of singing this song a lot as a okay. kid mm-hmm. and a specifically strong memory of listening to it on tape because i had like a, a cassette tape of it which i guess had a bunch of other disney songs on it and listening to that cassette tape and writing down the lyrics which seems like a really kind of nerdy librarian thing for a child to do well i mean i, I guess it depends on what impulse was driving you to do that and do you do you remember no not really like i wanted to be able to sing it and mm. get it right but it just I don't know. And I did that, I did that sort of thing a lot as a kid. And yeah. like growing up into a teenager had, it was almost kind of always recording culture for, for somebody else or, but I don't know who. That makes sense with what you do now. As far as I can tell, your work is kind of in the nature of chronicle. I'm thinking about how young people will inscribe lyrics of songs that they really strongly identify with. My math exercise book is just, the margins are just full of, you know, fucking Tori Amos lyrics. (laughs) And I did that. Yeah, I did a lot of that as a kid. And I think I still do that now. Like, Mm. I'd be embarrassed to say it, but I like have that kind of, if a, a lyric or something I really identify with, like, I have that impulse to want to like write it on my shoes or like on my like my binder and going to school or something but obviously can't go to work with a bunch of sort of gothy lyrics written all over myself <laughs> well, because it i mean for me at least it, it never works because and this is why i asked if you remembered what your impulse was if it was like you're trying to sort of memorize the lyrics so that you can like sing them correctly and writing them out would be a good tool. That's one way you can memorize things. Hmm. But if it's just like inscribing it from just the pure intensity of feeling and sort of wanting to communicate that intensity outside of your own internal sort of world. And it never friggin' works. Like when, yeah. when I sort of put a, you know, cause I'm a 34 year old man. I, <laughs> if I, if I put a lyric into a tweet that I'm feeling real strong, like unless the people reading it also know and love that song, it's not going to, travel you know? yes yes but I, I think when you when i say that i w- was writing them to sing the song another real kind of enduring memory that i have of this song is i didn't really sing it i performed it it was ah. the, it was almost like it was it was drag before i would know what drag was i think yes. because i specifically form it with a towel a bath towel on my head as hair yes and 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 I was performing it to an audience that didn't exist. Yes, but, but I was definitely I was rehearsing for some for for a, a performance that was never going to happen. I think. Yes. What's your relationship with this song now? Well, I, when I was kind of picking these songs, I was kind of thinking about all of that stuff that I would do as a kid. Like I'm I'm, I'm working on a project just now, which is about the uh, working on a project with a friend where the the main character is. Uh, a gay 
kid, like he's kind of 12, 13 years old, and thinking a lot about myself as a kid and as a teenager. And and it's specifically about this thing that I'm really interested in is like queerness or gayness in children before they have a sexuality. When I think about that kind of idea of, of, of performing this almost drag version of part of your world, it, it's like it's like I'd invented all of this stuff or I'd created all of this stuff before I knew what it was or had a context for it. Yeah. I don't know if I'm articulating that at all. No, I, I think you are. Like it was, it was something that was necessary for you and you invented it and it already existed in the world unaware. You were unaware of that because it was necessary for other people. You know, yeah. As well. Yeah. That's, that's absolutely it. It always bugs me a bit. Um, when, I understand the political efficacy of the argument that gay people are just people who happen to like to have sex and romance with people of like their own gender. It bugs me because there is something else. Like there is some other sense of difference. There absolutely is. I think there's a cultural thing. And like the thing that articulates it the best to me. And when I was kind of working on this project, I watched. There's an SNL sketch, um, Wells for Sensitive Boys, um, (laughs) which totally articulates everything that I wanted to say in this project, in this kind of three minute sketch, which is a a kind of parody advert for a Fisher Price, a a well for sensitive boys and other things in the line are a a balcony for when he wants to make pronouncements and a, (laughs) a, a fractured mirror for when he wants to contemplate the fractured nature of human existence and things like that. There are things, there are definite queer things, definite moments in my upbringing where I was articulating queerness before I had a context for it. You use the song now to sort of reflect on um, your sort of pre-pubescent queerness. The sense of being somehow different or other before you were able to sort of articulate that, I guess. Yes. So so this is sort of like, um, this song is kind of like a, a, a not a time capsule, but a, a bridge to that. Yeah, it's very kind of nostalgic, I think, to look to to listen to that music okay, yeah. now. But like I do generally think like a lot of those songs in kind of that era of Disney film are really good musical songs. And I listen yeah. to a lot of musical theatre anyway. So um there was like a Broadway version of The Little Mermaid a couple of years ago mm-hmm. with Sierra Borges as um Ariel. The the version of Part of Your World in that or Part of That World um is like I, I kind of remember listening to that soundtrack and just going like, oh wow, this is actually a really good song. Her performance of it brings a real different tone to the song. I think the the song in the film is is really about longing and there's like a real sadness to it but in the the musical version it's a slightly brighter performance and a slightly i kind of recontextualize it as like her as a teenager and she's kind of it's almost lusting after this world and this man who she doesn't really know (laughs) (laughs) we we all all give away too much for our first crushes (laughs) yes yeah (laughs) yeah but um Oh my goodness, I actually listened to that musical version and you're mm. right. And the line that really like stuck out, she really nails that bright young woman sick of swimming <gasps> yes. ready to stand, which is the sort of like that somewhat strident like, mm, I'm going to take my place in the world and you mm. know, it, it 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 that she nails that line. Um yes. 
So yeah. yeah, our next selection, which is meant to sort of represent your teen years, yes. is the Spice Girls. And I know that you struggled picking up one song. <laughs> I really did. And I felt like I, I feel like I'm cheating with this one because I think like the song is nostalgic and like it's obviously a ballad and it's about... I mean, this, the Spice Girls songs could be about anything because they're such. <laughs> their lyrics are often quite good, but often absolute nonsense when you kind of <laughs> evaluate them. They always said that this song was about a holiday romance. I should pause you because we haven't told the listeners what song it is yet. Oh, so. no, we haven't. <laughs> so pause. Can they guess? Think your uh, guess now. And Michael, tell them. <laughs> the song is Viva Forever. Clip plays. <laughs> Am I right? I think of you as a little bit of a Spice Girl scholar or a Spice scholar. I am. So can you explain the significance of the song to our listeners? Because I can never remember if this is the one that they put out right after Jerry uh, Ginger Spice left or if they put it out right before and she left during the promotion for it. I, I can't quite remember. This is this song is in that is both of those. It's in like a weird liminal zone. They uh, this was always supposed to be the last single from Spice World, the second Spice Girls album. Um, and they did one live performance of it with Jerry when they were kind of promoting the single. And then Jerry, for a, for about two or three weeks, Jerry was sick. She was a, she, uh, she was um, under the weather and, and not performing with them. So they performed it together. What I think is um, always, there's almost something kind of, in the fact that Jerry is, the, this is the only song that Jerry doesn't have a lead vocal on. Um, so it's almost fate, fatalistic that she is, wasn't around for it. Well, the song has a has a very sort of, I, I don't know if this is just because I was of a similar age to you and, and like it felt very important, but like it has a kind mm. of a, a portentous feeling like the song is about destiny. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But she was, they were definitely, she was definitely supposed to be around for it. She's, uh, the video is, has them represented by these mm -hmm. fairy figures. Um, I think it's a fantastic video. Um, and the Australian version of the single, there was five different covers with the, all the different Spice Girls on them. Um, and they printed up the ones with Jerry on them. But because she wasn't around anymore, they didn't release them. So the only way you could get them was by uh, winning competitions and things like that. And for a, for a brief moment in the early 2000s, I had uh, a Jerry Viva Forever cover. But uh, when I went to university, I had to sell it oh. <laughs> to be able to afford to uh, eat and things oh, like goodness, that. Oh, goodness, the things that um, we do for our education. <laughs> so what did the Spice Girls mean to you when you were young? I have had a couple of conversations with people about this. I guess a lot of people slightly older than me, the Spice Girls means something very different to them, like kind of very commercial pop and kind of manufactured. But for me, like, yeah, I think the thing that I always say about Spice Girls is the only difference between the Spice Girls and Riot Girl is that you could get Spice Girls duvet covers and Asda. Um, you, you didn't have to go to some record shop in the middle of nowhere and get, you know, one of 200 silk screened uh, tote bags or, or things like that to show the world this is uh, who you were and what you were all about. 
I, I kind of underestimate now, I think, as an, as an adult, how much they meant to me as a young person. Like, a, they took up about 80% of my thoughts when I was t- uh, a kind of early teenager, I think. Um, May I ask what some of those thoughts might have been? I think it's about escapism again. Like, I think there's a, a definite sense of... I think the thing that I always love about the Spice Girls, like somebody like a kind of a Beyonce or a Britney Spears, you, you could never meet that person or I could never meet that person but the Spice Girls you could go into any pub or bar in the UK at any point between kind of the 80s and now and meet five best pal girls that were like that or that are like that and there's something very kind of that they're not great singers or great dancers or some of them aren't even that charismatic. But um, and <laughs> I've always found Victoria's like icy demeanor strangely off-putting, and I tend to like ice creams, so like I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love Victoria. She's. I think Victoria Beckham is misunderstood. She's a very funny person, and she knows exactly <laughs> who she is in her market. Um, Good. My favorite. Victoria Beckham moment is on the Spice Girls. They did like a reunion tour a couple of years ago. And on that tour, each of the Spice Girls comes out and does one of their solo numbers. Um, And Posh's solo number is uh, she does a runway walk in one of her dresses that she's designed to RuPaul's um, work, (laughs) Supermodel of the World. Um, That's great. I just like the absolute audacity of, of coming out and not even like doing a walk to your own song like <laughs> i love it her, her life is her is her production i guess <laughs> yes yes the spice girls definitely meant a huge amount to me as a as a kind of between the ages of about 11 and 14 just massive were you upset when they broke up uh, well the spice girls never actually broke up michael <laughs> oh, I get upset oh my people. goodness <laughs> Jerry left. There was a long hiatus, like, and then they came back. Like Kate Bushy in hiatus. Where are they? Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Well, goodness, I, I I apologize for my faux pas. They never broke up. I mean, it's the clue is in the title. The Splice Girls are eternal, right? <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, so, um, who's your favorite? Jerry Halliwell, obviously, is was a, a gateway drag. I think for me, like, and and I think that's something that the Spice Girls were is that they. They were a real, accidentally, are a very queer band in themselves. Like, um, I, I, I kind of talking to my friend recently, and I, I he uh, was kind of decrying the fact that Mel C, uh, Sporty Spice, was playing at, I think, Manchester Pride. He's like, why, why, the hell is, why the hell is Mel C at Manchester Pride? And I was like, you need to remember that gay men are not the only people that Pride is for. Yes. And, and, <laughs> Mel C is to lesbians what Jerry is to gay men. Like she is very beloved, and she she holds that kind of sacred space as as PE teacher spice, and then as that kind of her early solo stuff where she was wearing kind of tartan kilts and had very short hair and stuff like that. Um, she 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 was an accidental kind of gateway drug into into lesbian culture i guess as as much as jerry was a, a gateway drug into drag and and putting on too much makeup <laughs> and just ridiculous costumes i mean i can remember when jerry left it felt mm. almost like a death in a weird way yes and then 
correct me if I'm wrong, I haven't had time to go check YouTube to see if my memory of this is correct, but she comes out of a fucking casket in her first solo video, right? Like, Yeah, yes. she does. <laughs> she does. I mean, of course, <laughs> oh my god, that's so drag. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, well, her, her first video, there's, there's four Jerry's in it. Um, mm. One is a nun for some reason, and one is a jilted bride, and uh, there's a sort of vampy businesswoman. Uh, and then uh, during the video, there's a, a sort of funeral procession for ginger, mm-hmm. uh, like ginger spice. And then she comes out of a casket um, and laughs like, so ginger's not really dead, guys. <laughs> uh, so how um, did your peers react to your um, being into the Spice Girls? Like what was going on in terms of your social life around this time? Were, you, were the people you're friends with also into them or was it, you know what I'm asking? Yeah, I do know. <laughs> um, the answer is not very positively, but I think I think when I was growing up, I didn't like I didn't have any male friends mm-hmm. like for a long time. Um, I had like one male friend in in all of my time at school. But this, I think, Spice Girls, why they took up so much space in my life and why they were so important is that they were so popular um that like all the girls in my school were into spice girls so there was like that instant kind of language i think and i think i was able to make friends with people because of that with with girls because of the spice girls and i think obviously a lot of the guys that i went to school with were not particularly um positive about that but yeah i think what i got from them was very positive because I was able to make friendships and make kind of have relationships with girls. And, I mean, and that was kind of the thesis statement of the Spice Girls was that, you know, friendship is the most important thing, right? <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. See, like in a really weird way, like I really remember this um, and it, it, like I laugh about it now, but I really remember that on the Spice Girls first album, their song To Become One, um, the album version has the line, the lyric is like boys and girls go good together. And the single version, they changed that lyric to Love Will Bring Us Back Together because the lyrics could be absolutely anything. They're absolute nonsense, usually. Um, but they changed it to that because they felt like boys and girls would uh, it kind of left out their gay Oh, that's fans. great. And I think, like, I really remember that. And that I think that was the first time I really remember some, like, like, gayness or mm. queerness mentioned in any sort of positive yeah. light or like positive making a positive of... accommodation acknowledging that gay people are real <laughs> yeah yeah and I, like and i laugh about that now but actually that was really important oh, sure. to me as a as a young person to hear that was it. like the middle late 90s like yeah like 97 public attitudes are very different then yeah yeah i feel like we've talked about the spice girls as cultural signifiers and so forth quite mm. a bit. I think we haven't said almost anything about Viva Forever, the song. Yeah, because I think I could have picked any Spice Girls song. <laughs> well, I was glad you picked this one because um, every now and again, I'll sort of have a bit of a nostalgia kick and I will generally turn to Say You'll Be There and Spice Up Your Life as the mm. two ones that I like best. And it's just because they sort of get my pop taste buds tingling the most. Um mm in terms of the production and everything. I haven't listened to Viva Forever in years and years and years. And um, my memory had kind of amped up the Enya aspect and had sort of toned down all the rest of it. Um, 
it has kind of a like a there's a lot of Spanish flourishes going on here, which I totally forgot. It kind of mm. feels like a lazy Sunday in the Balearics, like yeah, yeah. Well, there's your holiday yeah. romance <laughs> element of it, um, but I think I I, I picked this song because I think it's easy to like like you just said we talked about the Spice Girls as a cultural phenomenon but it's it's easy to forget that they had really good pop songs as well and I think this is a really good pop ballad um that is that is ready for a comeback as like a an x-factor single or something like well, I that I kept singing it to myself as I was making breakfast this morning so well there you go it definitely wormed its way in there <laughs> great yeah. is there anything else about the Spice Girls or the song that you wanted to talk about I don't think so I think it was about nostalgia mm. I, I definitely picked that song for the nostalgic element of it yeah. and the kind of that it is definitely about looking back I have my own sort of personal Spice Girls mythology it's sort of like I have this nice little meteoric ascent where they start as rabble rousing rebels in the wannabe video and then they're sort of surveying mm. their spice panopticon in spice up your life you know <laughs> going through the blade runner city and like delivering impassioned political speeches like world dominator jerry hollywell from that video yeah. is just great yeah and then like they Amazing. ascend to literal immortality in viva forever that's how my brain traces yeah. it well i think that's absolutely right like the 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 video after that, Goodbye, which is the song they did about Jerry leaving, the four of them, it, it they go to this sort of great big mansion and everybody inside it is frozen in like dioramas. And I, in my canon of that, that mansion is the same mansion as the one they sort of boulderizing through in the uh in the wannabe video <laughs> um, yeah oh we've come so far <laughs> great yeah. okay let's move on so the third song we have is to represent the the period as you're leaving your teens and entering your 20s and you've picked a track by patrick wolf called the magic position I bet many listeners might not know who Patrick Wolf is. So would you like to enlighten them? It's, it's difficult to describe Patrick Wolf because Patrick Wolf, I could have picked a song by Patrick Wolf for like any time in my life. But yeah, he's a British musician, uh, kind of London based and very folky influenced pop. Um, a sort of music musical prodigy from being a, a young kid. His first album came out when he was 19 Uh and it's a real, his music has always been this real mix of, of folk and kind of classical influences um, with, with I think, like dance and pop. And and this is from his third album, I think? Yeah, his third album. So um, how did you get into Patrick Wolfe? I really remember, and this is a weird way, I kind of thinking about this, this is a weird way now to get into music in a way that, um, I mean, I guess some people kind of get into music like this but it's not the way I discover music now but I read a there was like a it was like a pseudo fanzine magazine um and that you could get it in like record shops and stuff like that and it was mass produced but it had like a fanzine edge called uh careless talk costs lives um and there was a profile of Patrick Wolf in that um about his EP he had a, his first kind of release was an EP with a, a bunch of songs from the first album on it. And from that, I went on his 
website and and kind of got that EP and and like I think was it was was initially like reacting to what he was saying in that profile rather than like what this music how they were describing his music but like downloaded it and just love loved his music from then I think this song in particular so you were already big fan when this album came out do you remember hearing it for the first time and how you reacted to it well i was a big name patrick Wolf. <laughs> you were big in the fandom I, I was i was um i used to run his message board and i have a thank you in the liner notes for this album that's my claim to fame but i remember hearing it i went to like a listening party for this album and hearing a bunch of these songs and in this album he there's there's almost like a, a there was for a long time always this kind of david bowie thing to patrick mm-hmm. wolf and that with his his album before this one wind in the wires um it was all very kind of gothic and dark and about sort of british landscapes and the winter and stuff like that and he had really dark hair and the way he was presenting was really dark and then this album like he's got red hair and the, the, the album cover is him in this kind of uh, carousel fairground and everything was just sort of day glow and cartoonish and really reacted to that that sense of, of cartoonishness and positivity when I heard the record and this song in particular, I think. Because he had blonde hair during his first album, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can remember because I was I was moderately into him for, for around this time. And it was sort of like, oh, he does a different hair color for every album cycle, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of was that. I think, actually, I really, maybe I'm misremembering this, but I think, so for, for Wind in the Wires, he did like a, a last concert of like, this is the last show I'm going to do with all of these songs and all of the stuff that he was doing in that, that era. And I I think in the break in the sort of interlude i think he was wearing a, a dark wig and i think in the interlude he came out and he had red hair so it was it, it, yeah um for people who would notice it was a new era <laughs> of patrick <Wolf. laughs> i mean there's the bowie sort of um thing going on there the the persona and the shifting f- like physical presentation but i mean it's drag too <laughs> like yeah yeah it absolutely is yeah that's the kind of common denominator of all these things (laughs) so uh, a lot changes in most lives between the teens and the early 20s um what changed in yours so i i I grew up in northumberland kind of rural northumberland like uh, literally in the address for the house that i grew up in it was you have to put near morpeth so that people know where to deliver your post to (laughs) because it was just such the middle of nowhere and such a sort of a place that I was always waiting to get away from. And I know that's the kind of narrative for a lot of queer people. I went to university in Glasgow and and I think I chose this song because it was like moving to university was like kind of everything coming into colour. Yeah. <laughs> Almost like The Wizard of Oz going from black and white and into colour. Learning to live in a major key, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, having my first relationship and friendship with with the type of people that I'd always wanted to exist but didn't know if they ever would or could a big part of that part of my life and why I chose Patrick Wolf is that I I I think this was the the last time I've been really really into a an 
a musician or an artist and like we would go to all of his gigs and like when I think I was thinking about it I went to like places like Nottingham that where there was no reason for me to go there I would just go because he was performing there and he'd be playing a bunch of songs I'd already seen him perform like the week before or but it was very much like traveling around to see this musician and the kind of community that grows up around kind of a a, a pop star or uh, but a pop star that felt very accessible and um but at the same time very kind of theatrical and and performative mm-hmm. um yeah yeah absolutely this is definitely the most sort of indie and alternative song choice that you've made um uh, does this relate to the phase of life you were in your university years were you were you trying to be cool or was there something like that going on uh, at some level um i don't think so and i don't think that's ever been my thing i think actually i think my my version of that is to be the absolute opposite of it um and and almost almost obstinately not be indie or not be into things that are but when i was putting together this list i was really aware that i was like curating it and it was like i'm gonna have to pick a like spice girls song but i'm gonna have like a b-side and like something nobody's ever heard of (laughs) imagine a spice girls (laughs) b-side and it, it was almost about like showing how much i was into this stuff in the way that people are maybe into like really kind of indie music or like in kind of underground music I, I i don't know if it was that phase of my life i just i was definitely in patrick wolf reacting to that kind of performativeness and there's lots of literary influences in his music and did a literature degree as my undergraduate and that the kind of romance of it i was really attracted to but i don't think it was necessarily about being cool i don't think i have it in me to be cool <laughs> I'm not really interested in cool stuff. I, That's what makes you cool. <laughs> I remember having an interview for a job. At, um, I used to work in a, like an art house cinema and we would, we would show like French films and things that I'd never heard of. And I really remember in my interview for that, they asked me what my favourite film was and I said Mean Girls. Yes. And, and they, I think they thought I was like... <laughs> being cool by like picking something that was really mainstream <laughs> and stuff but like literally that is my favorite film and like the only film that i could have said because i don't have I, I i'm just not wired that way i'm interested in what a lot what is populist and maybe like to link back to the first song it is about sort of being outside the culture and looking into it uh and and attaching to things that I can find some of myself in but but at this point in his career like this is the time when Patrick Wolf was probably the most um he's had a a sort of in recent years it's kind of I don't want to say it's all gone very radio too which is the sort of middle of the road radio station in the UK but his last couple of albums have been very kind of turning up the the folky influence or the kind of more tasteful yeah yeah and he kind of looks like a crooner on the covers of them and stuff like that and he did a a a kind of the last thing he put out was this sort of collection almost like a greatest hits but where he did the folky pared down acoustic versions of all of his really kind of poppy songs like the magic position and i think the magic position era was like the time when when Patrick Wolf's star was in ascendance. Um, sure. Um, I mean, he was never, 
he's never top 40, right? Like, no, he was no, always sort of no. outside that world. <laughs> I mean, even with like the pop instincts and the performative and what have you, like he didn't have a big breakthrough hit, did he? No, I don't think so. I mean, it, maybe he has been in the top 40 because I don't understand how that even works <laughs> at this point in time. Um, I think people get chart kind of numbers based on how many people have hummed their song and stuff like that at this point. Yes, this is why we have the, the audio drone surveillance to affect the uh, affect the chart positions. With yeah. <laughs> um, he in the last kind of couple of years, he's had the kind of a steady fan base of people who are really into him for his music and his his songs. Um, he has a song called "The Days," which is in. God's Own Country, the a successful gay film, um, which is definitely not being marketed as a gay film, but it is a gay film. But he, so he has that kind of music fan audience. But I think at this point he had like, it was like cultish. Like the we'd, we'd go to every gig and there would be the same people at every gig. Um, and yeah, it was definitely that kind of vibe. And that's what I was really attracted to at that point. And then, we actually saw him like two, two or three years ago, uh, a gig in Oranmore in Glasgow. And I was like saying halfway through, I was like, oh, this audience is really weird now. Patrick's audience is really weird. Everyone's really old. Like, where's all the teenagers and stuff? And my boyfriend was like, no, they're the same audience. Like, it, 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 we are just old <laughs> And it's the same people coming to the gigs. They're just like, yeah not dressed in like mad costumes and things because you don't you can't go to work in like a skirt and a wig and things like that he's a a musician that i feel like i've grown up with if if you can yeah absolutely i guess and thinking about how certain artists allow i don't know i guess every artist has a fandom but some it just seems incomprehensible. Like I don't want to, I don't want to pick anyone in particular. But I don't know. Like, are Nickelback fans so like big into like? Do they have a big community? And like, do, do people like really identify like in that same sort of um, fanish, like cultish kind of way? I don't know. I'm sure they do, but it just seems incomprehensible. I mean, some somebody. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, people people buy their records, sure, but like, I own records mm. by people who I'm not sort of cultishly obsessed with, <laughs> like. At the, the time when this kind of album was out, actually, kind of record was out, I worked in a school uniform shop and I remember one day like packaging, like we had like a, a sort of room in the back where we do all this kind of packing and folding and unpacking of stuff that had come in. And it was me and this other guy. And he was like somebody's boyfriend who was working there for two weeks because it was a busy time. I remember talking to him about like I was going to see it probably was Patrick Wolf, um, and like asking him what music he was into, and he said Oasis, and I was like, oh, cool, and like he talked to me about going to see Oasis, like it was this really mo- like moving like incredible experience, and they were these amazing songwriters and musicians, and it was so I just couldn't cope with it oh my god imagine somebody liking like loving oasis as if they're not just the absolute first thing you'd pick up when you go to the tesco's i mean i i know there was the big blur oasis war in the 90s but Mm. there was clearly a correct side to pick there (laughs) (laughs) yes definitely definitely well i was always attracted to david albarn okay so why don't we move on to your fourth song so the fourth song you've selected is for your sort of your late 20s 
that kind of period of your life, and you have uh, a Girls Aloud track, the loving kind. I think this is a transatlantic difference. Um, I don't really know very much about who Girls Aloud are, but I know that they are very popular in the UK. Um, is this song typical of their sound? Um, I think so. This is kind of their second, I guess, a kind of slightly more grown-up Girls Aloud, but definitely like that kind of girl band, pop, electronic, dance-influenced music. But like I think they're a very British phenomenon, Girls Aloud, and I don't know if they could if they could translate to kind of outside of mm. Europe. Certainly. I mean, I don't know if the band could and sort of the cultural trappings of the band, but I mean, this is a this mm. is a pretty dreamy sort of disco track. Yeah, I mean that I can see. Well, it's not the sort of thing that gets played on Top Forty Radio over here, but Top Forty right now is not in the space, anyways. But I mean, I can see it having sort of a Robin-like sort of crossover potential. Yeah, it's that kind of the genre of sad disco music that I'm really into. Yeah, the sort of once you like sort of pay attention to the lyrics, it's like, oh goodness, this this is a, a melancholy, regretful, and depressive song, but it sounds so good. <laughs> yeah, they're just I, I I do think there's something in that kind of melancholy pop music that I'm really attracted to or like that really kind of pushes my buttons so I, I really played with this or robin's dancing on my own for such a long time and then decided to go with this one mm. um, well good because i think most people have heard robin's dancing on my own whereas hmm. i think this might be new to some people yeah who are at least on this side of the ocean <laughs> What was going on in your life when you were getting into this song? So this is, it came out in 2009, like the album came out in 2008, I think. And then the the song came out in 2009 as a single and wasn't a very successful Girls Aloud single. They'd had like a number one from the same album. And um, I think as Girls Aloud songs go, this, I think it went into the top 10, but only just and and wasn't particularly successful but it's a kind of enduring Mm. song i think and it's a song that i've always gone back to and always listened to and i think at this time in my life we were kind of my mid-20s that was when i realized that writing was a thing that a person could do yeah and i think i really i think a lot of people will will talk about like oh i've written since i was a child and i've always wanted to be a writer but that was not the case for me i just didn't have any context for that or know that that was something you could do and something that was accessible to me and for for, in 2009 I was unemployed for six months uh, and it was and remains the worst six months of my life (laughs) and I think in that six months I wrote the first ever like the first screenplay that I'd ever written I wrote it in that time and it's kind of that idea of you write what you know, and all I knew was was being gay <laughs> and going out. Uh, so I wrote this this thing about being gay and going out um, was TV script, and used that script to get 
um i got onto a screenwriting ma mm-hmm. at that point um and did this kind of masters in screenwriting and and i think that was the thing that changed my life but this this song in particular why i chose girls aloud is that i think i write uh, like write fiction or screenwriting because i can't write songs and i can't write music and i i think if i wrote a screenplay that was as good as this song i would stop writing immediately <laughs> it's just like it tells such a story in like three and a half minutes and it's i just wish i could do that and girls aloud are the influence on all of my early screenwriting stuff in in ways that people wouldn't even recognize but they totally totally were i hope that there's some graduate student 30 years from now listening to this and just frantically scribbling notes it's like girls aloud are the key <laughs> to everything okay yes they absolutely are <laughs> excellent excellent as we were saying like this track itself is does that sort of sad disco thing hmm. i mean when i was looking at it like reading the lyrics as i was listening it struck me as sort of really hitting at that anxiety that we haven't sufficiently or successfully expressed our love to the people we care about yeah yeah is is that a fear you have um is it i think yes and no because i think i think this kind of buying you flowers and pouring you right wine kind of expressions of love or romance is not how i'm wired up my way of i think showing love to people is very different to that that kind of romantic comedy type of love um, which is weird because i'm really into like romantic comedy and things like that but my way of of expressing my love for people is to like be really there for them yeah which is a uh, worth a hell of a lot more than flowers like <laughs> yes <laughs> i i like to think so but i think yeah i can definitely like read a lot of myself into this song and that but i think there's something so like it's the thing that i'm really like the the kind of pull for me with girls aloud is that they're so they are like i don't think they can translate like outside of the uk or europe because they're so quintessentially british in a way that's not like you know tea and cake and british bake-off kind of britain i I pity the people who think that's the whole of british society (laughs) there's a lot of british people that think that's the whole of british society (laughs) and that's how we ended up in this bloody mess (laughs) i mean i like the bake-off don't get me wrong (laughs) like (laughs) there's more to it like (laughs) (laughs) yes um i is that, the, and I think in this song, the thing that I that, that always I like, come back to is that the sort of middle eight, I think, where it's like somewhere on a crowded platform in the rush hour of another day, and I just think that is like such a like a massively like a huge strong image and a hugely British image that that so few other people could get away with or could kind of translate i just yeah i think it's a fantastic i mean song. It, it, it could be new yorky mm. like that could fit for new york mm. um but think, like it do- doesn't fit for most of north america yeah yeah i think new york is a very british this <laughs> is british as uh, the u.s is gonna get i can see what you're saying there and i will half agree <laughs> <laughs> yeah i've never actually been to new york I, like my whole uh 
concept of New York is from, like, sex and <laughs> girls and things like that. So. Uh, you know, yes and no. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, we've kind of danced around this, and, and I'm glad we're talking about Girls Aloud as being quintessentially British and sort of difficult to mm. translate. But, um, I mean, who are Girls Aloud? Uh, there was a, a series called Pop Stars in the UK where... They, it was like a really early kind of American Idol X Factory show where they put together a pop band. And then the second series of pop stars um, was called Pop Stars The Rivals. Uh, and they put together a boy band and a girl band. And the idea was that they would release their single on the first, on the, on the same day. And the one who got, you know, the furthest in the charts would get a record contract uh, and the other one would get, like, I don't know, dumped. <laughs> um, so Girls Aloud were the girl band, obviously. Um, and they, their single went to number one. So uh, like a, a very much manufactured, poppy, like put together commercial band. Um, but they worked with uh, production team Xenomania, who they wrote and produced Believe for Cher, ah. that was their kind of, and Maria for Blondie, um, and then, and then Girls Aloud kind of became their their muse, I guess, in a lot of ways, uh, and and just brilliant pop songs and kind of girls, like British girls in their late teens and early twenties going on a night out pop mm. songs, and it, and I think that is a. Uh, an untapped resource. So how would you differentiate these from the Spice Girls? Um, I think there's a lot of similarities, like, um, it, and, and like the Spice Girls, they're kind of girl, they're, they're girls that you could go into any pub or bar in the UK and meet these, these five girls and put them in a band and they might be girls allowed. They're, they're from all over the UK. Um, and I think that brings a certain sensibility to it that, that being a bunch of people who grew up together and have a common language might not necessarily have the spark to make something fly. <laughs> like, and, and that in the last kind of couple of years, Girls Aloud split up. And in the last couple of years, more and more kind of stories are coming out that essentially they all hated each other <laughs> for a long time. And I think even that has its place in what makes them so good and so accessible because we've all hated all our friends at some point i thought you were going to say that that had a part in what makes them so british (laughs) (laughs) well that too that too (laughs) oh just simmering resentment (laughs) (laughs) but they're one of my uh specialist subjects my favorite things is celebrity conspiracy theories okay um and i think it, it is at the level of conspiracy theory now in the same way that the Harry Styles, Louis Tomlinson stuff is. Um, there's a, a sort of strong shipping fandomy element of, of Harry Styles, Louis Tomlinson. And with Girls Aloud, that element is um, Kimberly Walsh and Cheryl. Well, she just goes by Cheryl now. <laughs> she was Cheryl, Cheryl Tweedy originally, but she's been through lots of different uh, iterations of marriages and surnames. And I think they played up to this strong undercurrent of like queerness or that th- th- they might be in a relationship. So I think that always comes into my appreciation of them as well. Was there anything that you were hoping to talk about with this track? Oh, my, my the one thing about this song... That I think it's worth people knowing is that it's a Pet Shop Boys song. Oh. Um, it's Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe wrote it, and Xenomania 
produced it and add bit added bits into it. Um, but the the demo version of it, uh, I don't know if it's going on like a Pet Shop Boys unreleased songs collection or something at some point. But the the demo of it sort of surfaced recently, the original uh, Neil Tennant demo, and it's really interesting to hear like a a man sing it for a start and like an older man um it just brings a kind of different element to this song that i always thought of as like quintessentially a young girls or like girls in their mid-20s song i can see that working i can see that working pretty easily actually i'm gonna have to listen to it 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 might make me sad (laughs) i'm 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 a little bit afraid but I'll, i'll listen to it the last song I've asked you to pick is to sort of represent what's going on with you recently. And by that, I mean the last couple of years. And you've got Flawless, the remix, Beyonce with Nicki Minaj. This diamond, my diamond, this rock, my rock. I woke up like this. I woke up like this. So how would you characterize your relationship with this song? This is my most the most listened to song on my iPhone. Um, I have this song on my iPhone three times, and they are the three most listened to, most played tracks wow. <laughs> on my phone. I love this song so much, and for a long time, it was the first song that I would listen to in the day to like set me up for the day, and and I still go back to it all the time it's a sort of it, like an empowerment song or like a song that i listen to to like give myself up for something it's a pop-up yeah. song yeah yeah i just such a massive fan of beyonce and everything that she stands for and i think when i was trying to pick a beyonce song um obviously this is the song that i've listened to the most so i would go with this one but i i kind of recognized that so many of beyonce's songs and particularly over the the last album like lemonade are about beyonce and being beyonce and i just couldn't quite like there's songs of hers that i see myself in or i kind of find something in but i couldn't quite commit to having it on my mixtape um (laughs) but but this one is and i guess this song is about Beyonce and being Beyonce but in a very accessible way and in a way that um, like I think she literally is saying in the song like I want everyone to feel like this so much of Beyonce for me is about like self-love and like like feeling yourself yeah I love (laughs) Um, that track so so that's what I'm finding in this it's about kind of self-love and I think actually I I was putting it too neatly but I think in the last kind of couple of years that's where I've come to I think it took me a long time to figure out I think I've always known who I was, but to figure out what I could do with that or like to not to not be constantly apologizing for that or like hiding parts of that for certain people or putting other people before me. That sounds very kind of like, I don't know, self-help Oprah, but like, yeah, do you think you have to kind of look after yourself before you're going to look after anybody else? You do. And I don't know, like, I don't think we should be so reluctant to sound like a self-help book that we actually don't help ourselves like (laughs) yes yeah yes yeah so you said that you just love beyonce and everything she stands for and you kind of elaborated on that a little in that sort of like Mm. that sort of self-love it's so amazing to be me sort of feeling but i mean beyonce stands for more than that no she absolutely yeah so would you care to elaborate on in your perception what beyonce stands for like i think there's been and i think this is part of that kind of idea of coming to 
love myself, I guess, is that Beyonce as a black woman and a and a an empowered black woman is sort of indicative of the new figures that we have like uh, kind of pop culture figures that we have of like people leaning into the thing that you know like particularly over the last kind of two albums Beyonce has leaned into like Lemonade is is an album made by a black woman about what it's like to be a black woman in in you know 2016-17 and and she represents this new kind of pantheon of figures of, of kind of cultural figures that that aren't just white men but also aren't uh black women seen through the, the sort of eyes of black of, of uh white men or, or is that making sense i don't know if i'm articulating it quite. yeah yeah i feel really like i am white and <laughs> i feel really like uh, this is maybe not my thing to be commenting on yes i i completely understand the anxiety you don't want to speak for a community that you're not a part of but i i, I have a note here like, this is a self-esteem anthem that's performed by two black women. And the relationship between mm. gay men and black women has been written about endlessly, and it's been celebrated, and it's been problematized, and it's been picked apart. Mm. Um, do you have a take on it? Because it extends beyond Beyonce. Oh, it totally does. Yeah. Black women and gay men have a thing. <laughs> yeah. I, I was talking to somebody about this recently, like one of my friends who is a black gay man, and the idea of, um, like... Or the, the way that kind of black women or the culture of black women uh, and gay uh, culture borrow from each other so often. Like so much of that kind of Real Housewives of Atlanta stuff is very like throwback to ballroom and uh, like they're using drag lingo a lot of the time and maybe wouldn't necessarily recognise it. Like I, I think there's a point um where where gay men are, are kind of saying that they have an inner black woman and stuff like that where it just becomes um not just problematic but like utterly cringeworthy yeah. and yeah. makes me want yeah. to crawl into a hole like white gay men doing kind of parodies of what they think a black woman is i just find grotesque but i think when when both cultures are are borrowing from each other it can be very empowering it can be very positive and i think uh, obviously there are black gay men so i'm not not like discounting that they uh that their experiences are probably very different but um like i think the idea of like empowerment anthems and like people who might need empowerment out anthems in in kind of in the culture yeah i don't know if i'm articulating this very well no i think you are i mean i think what you were just saying there the the idea that there are multiple groups of people who culture has placed in a position of disempowerment who will like immediately sort of reach out to an empowerment anthem when they hear it even if it's coming from a different group mm. of marginalized or disempowered people but it's sort of like we're all of us chasing the same carrot you know and i think i think like for for various reasons i think like i think like gay men particularly have had to exist in such a space in the culture like as kind of in a kind of desexualized comedy kind of court jester space in the culture for so long. Mm. And I think black women have probably existed in their own space in culture as kind of sexualized and objectified by other people. And I think if black women are, are kind of making stuff um, for and about themselves that is empowering, I think that's what a lot of gay men are, are, are kind of 
attaching themselves to. And I think there's something actually about um, there aren't that many empowering gay anthems that are by queer or LGBT people. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm trying to think of some now. <laughs> My brain's not working so good. I know there's at least a few, but. Hmm. But I think when you think of gay anthems, it's all your kind of Madonnas yeah. and Gloria Gaynor and stuff like that. Like, not very many of them are made by us. No, um, no. I almost yeah. wonder if we're so trained to expect the diva voice to be singing our anthems mm. that, like, we wouldn't accept a male voice singing one. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, I think there might be something in that. Like, because I think, like, the closest to that would be, like, Scissor Sisters. But I think they still existed in a particular space. Yeah. In a quite a kind of comical space or like a... Campy. Campy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Huh. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Just to bring it back to the song, um, you've listened... It's your three most listened to songs on your on your eyes, <laughs> so, which I find funny because I keep I keep having to delete dupes that I've accidentally got a hold of, um, and you you haven't. You've just, I just can't no. bring myself to do it. Well, you lose why. all those plays. Like it's, in terms of statistics, it's important. But I mean, so obviously you've listened to this song extensively. So I was, you know, I've heard it, but I've never really sort of paid very close attention to it until I was listening to it yesterday. Um, and I just, I love how it has so many parts. Like it just keeps shifting. It's not really a typical pop song in almost any way. No. It's not very melodically hooky, but it is very sort of rhythmically compelling, of course. Yeah. Um, but like, it, it doesn't sort of follow like a verse chorus structure either. It just sort of, it shimmers and it shifts and it sort of winds its way from beginning to end. Yeah. The, and I think there's something about it where that she's like, so this is a remix of a song from the Beyonce self-titled album. It's the song that has Chimamanda and Gozi on it. And um, I think like that, that song is barely a song. It's like a bunch of, of hooks and, and like bits of songs squashed together into into something that's really fascinating and worth listening to. Um, and then this takes elements from that and and makes it into something else entirely. And that's like a huge part of what I react to in it. Yeah, it's just like, and she did this on, when I saw her in like on tour last year, kind of big stadium gig, because that's one of the, only stadium gigs that I've been to that I really there was something happening in every corner of the of the stadium and she filled that space yeah and she did this song on it um in this kind of little medley of songs that she'd done with Nicki Minaj that didn't that she'd pulled all of the Nicki Minaj oh. bits out of it. oh no <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know I know I mean uh generally I mean this isn't always the case but more often than not a Nikki verse is going to be my favorite part of a song. It's like, oh boy, here it comes. Oh, absolutely. So, okay, that was going to be my next question. Was Nicki Minaj question mark? So. <laughs> like, I'm a huge Nicki Minaj fan. Or like, but I, I think I prefer Nicki Minaj on other people's mm. songs than like a Nicki Minaj song. Like, um, she, like, I, I listen to her Monsterverse all the time. Oh like, my God, yes. <laughs> three minutes and 35 <laughs> seconds in. And to the point that um, there was a, 
somebody did like this meme of Jay-Z's verse from that song, <laughs> which is actually quite funny, but I didn't recognise it because I've never actually listened to Jay-Z's verse on it, um, even though it's one of my most played songs on my, my iPod. I mean, there's elements of, of drag to Nicki Minaj as well. Oh, and that's like the the, kind of... Inhabiting multiple personas. And the thing is, she can do it. Like, she's mm. verbally, like dexterous and vocally sort of varied enough that she can she can pull off she can just turn on a dime (laughs) like i love it Mm, yeah i think that idea of like embodying other um personas is something that i react to in beyonce the lemonade album and i think why that feels so like like such a sort of gasp moment in the culture is that this is beyonce being beyonce Mm. without any sort of characters like she's always like Sasha Fierce or Miss Third Ward or Mrs. Carter and like BB Homemaker. And so many of those personas are about being the wife of Jay-Z. <laughs> um, and, and to have her not being that on Lemonade is so like, oh my God, like I can't believe I'm listening to that, to this. Um, We've seen the face of God. <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely. But, but I think it's something in, in the Flawless remix that I react to that is one of the things that I really react to in Beyonce is that you never know anything about Beyonce until Beyonce wants you mm. to know about it. And the the lyric of um kind of line about, of course, sometimes shit goes down when there's a billion dollars on an elevator. Cheekily commenting on something that people know to have happened in a way that's saying, yes, I know, you know, but you're never going to know anything else about this moment. So. Well, sometimes shit go down when it's a billion dollars on an elevator. Goddamn, goddamn, goddamn! In our texting back and forth in preparation for this show, there was a couple of things that you brought up that I am keen to hear you talk about. Uh, one was the notable absence of Kate Bush. Ah. <laughs> would, you, would you care to elaborate? Yeah, I was trying to find a Kate Bush song that would, like, fit into a part of my life and i think i think actually what it is is that kate bush's songs are stories and they're so narrative led that like i said that thing about the spice girls that the spice girl songs could be about anything because the lyrics are just like word salad really but kate bush songs are stories and and they have a beginning and middle and an end usually and and i couldn't quite add one to my own narrative and i also feel like kate bush's music is so like so many of her kind of songs are are led by an englishness that i react to and and enjoy when she's doing it but don't see myself in particularly now when any sort of englishness just feels a bit brexit and a bit yes Well, I mean, I can remember when it sort of came out that she supported Theresa May, and I was like, hmm, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I'm totally holding on to the idea that she never said she was a Tory. She never <laughs> She said that a women prime minister was probably a good thing. <laughs> she lived through Thatcher. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah, I, w- I want to go back to the idea of her as a storyteller and you as a storyteller, because we've sort of touched on that a little bit, but we haven't really talked a super lot about your writing. You really praised up the Girls Aloud song as a piece of narrative. Uh, is, is that something you hook on to when you're listening to songs? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I... I and one of the things that I do when I write actually is that often a piece of writing has a song that goes with it for me. And like to 
to to like get into that headspace it's about listening to that song like for the my loneliness is killing me the the short film that i'm doing the the piece of music there's two pieces of music for two different parts of the film and one of those pieces of music is um, uh, One More Time by Ariana Grande, which is that sad disco thing again. And the other one is um, Glacier by John uh, John Grant. don't know that one. Oh, it's a brilliant song um, that is totally about what the film is about, like the idea of like gayness and queerness and kind of masculinity having its effect on you over time um, rather than uh, something that you can just deal with and wash your hands off. Oh, that's what it's about to me anyway. Maybe it's not to, to John Grant. <laughs> well, I mean, whatever, the author's dead. Yes. <laughs> the other thing is you made some mention in our sort of texting back and forth about curating music tastes to appear cool. And I thought, based on that, that you would come out a bit more aggressively against posturing coolness. And you haven't really. Uh, is, <laughs> you care to comment? For a long time, I was, I was like almost like passionately against anything that could be seen as cool because i and i think because like when i was growing up like what was cool was white guys with guitars and like posture rock star guys which is just not i can't find anything in that for myself but i think we're in this space where because of the internet and social media and stuff like i feel like my sphere of influence is so curated that like at this point like whisper this, but I'm not that into Carly Rae Jepsen. And I feel... <laughs> You're allowed. F- this is a no judgment zone. <laughs> but I, I feel like there's something wrong with me. <laughs> like I I, I, tr- I listen to her and I'm like, what is it that I'm not getting that everybody else is getting out of this? It's like Ariel at the start. Maybe there is something the matter with you. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's something massively in like curating stuff. I'm quite aware that this podcast and its sort of conceit is is curatorial <laughs> like and i mean i'm basically sum yourself up sum up the, the you know your the entirety of your being and experience in five songs five songs is so hard by the way in a way that i don't think 10 would be as hard it's meant to be a challenge but that's what makes it interesting <laughs> yeah you have to be cruel you have to kill a few babies when you're making that list so why don't you let people know where they might be able to find you if they wanted to get in touch or to read some of your work or talk to you yeah i think i'm across most social media platforms as hrf michael um it stands for her royal flyness um <laughs> which nobody ever asks and i always hope they will <laughs> my twitter uh is where you'll find me most often i tweeted uh 16 times the other day between the times of nine o'clock and five o'clock when i was supposed to be at work so uh <laughs> prolific i'm always around yes and thanks again to michael for joining us and to you listener my name is michael collins and you can find me on twitter at earlking e-r-l-k-i-n-g i'm always happy to hear from you please at me if you'd like further information on the things in this episode including the spotify playlist which i've actually made and links to YouTube videos for all the songs, plus some other stuff. The show notes can be found at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash five. This is your mixtape is a proud part of the Megaphonic Network. Why don't you check out some of our other pretty cool shows? Thank you for joining us. See you soon. Mm-hmm.